Let me walk you back a little bit just to last week for a second. Well, the last couple weeks, we've been covering a look at Jesus' power and authority. We were looking at it indeed, because now he was looking to not only say his authority, as he did in the Sermon on the Mount where he spoke with authority, but in the last couple weeks, we've been covering the miracles of healing of Jesus as he was showing his authority, his authority over physical infirmities, his authority over demons. He was demonstrating his authority. Last week, we asked this question, is it God's will to heal everyone? That was the question we asked. We debated that. We looked at scripture together. And I just want to remind you of what our consensus was, where we kind of ended up. This seems to be our consensus, that God does have the power to heal anyone. Nobody doubted that God could heal anyone. That was part of the consensus. We also kind of found a consensus that there isn't really an instance in Scripture where somebody asked to be healed and Jesus didn't heal them. But we noted that Jesus didn't heal every single person. I mean, Jesus didn't just heal the entire Galilean area or Judea to say, hey, everybody's healed. In fact, we know of instances where there were people around others that he healed that he didn't heal. And the reason we struggled with this so much is because we had some honest discussions in this room about people who don't get healed. And you know there's a whole movement within Christianity that just says those people just don't have the faith. We struggled with that last week. Speaking of faith, we noticed that faith is not always a factor in every one of Jesus' healings. Here are just some of the things. Sometimes he healed because of their faith, but sometimes he healed because of the faith of others. Sometimes they weren't even in a position to have faith because they were dead, you know, and he was raising them or something. And there was a healing going on like that had nothing to do with them. Sometimes it was a result of a challenge. Last week we saw, what's easier, to forgive this person or to tell them to get up and walk? You know, maybe there wasn't even an intention at the moment to heal at first. He was forgiving their sins, and then all of a sudden when he was challenged, how do you forgive sins? Well, let me ask you a question. What's easier for me to forgive or for them to walk? So that's what kind of led us to maybe faith isn't always the only thing that's involved in healing. And the last thing is, I encouraged us at the end, we should not fall into the habit of forgetting the miraculous. So while most of us were on the side of saying, hey, you know what, maybe it takes more than just our faith to heal, I also don't want us to fall into the bad habit of stopping or not asking anymore, just kind of relaxing in what we kind of described last week, it's kind of a Western mentality of just praying for the ordinary, praying for the possible instead of remembering that God is still the God of the impossible and can do anything. And that's what leads us into today. Here's where we are tonight. We're going to talk about the cost of discipleship tonight. We're at that part in Matthew, or as I like to say, it's kind of the, why do we just sit around and talk about all the things we should be doing instead of actually doing it talk, okay? But we'll call it the cost of discipleship talk, okay? In this group, this is a fair criticism to lay at us in this room. We are good at talking, talking back. We're good at looking into them. We're looking at, like, looking at the church as a whole. We're very good at analysis and thought, but we lack a lot when it comes to actually doing something. There have been a lot of conversations going on in this room afterwards and during the week about what are we really doing with all of the knowledge that we gain in this room? And tonight we're going to partially answer those questions, like how do we move to do? Because Jesus encounters people in that position. So why don't you open up to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to look at verse 18 to 22. That's our starting point tonight. Jesus in the midst here of some of his healings. 
And we kind of carved this section out because we were looking at his power and his healing. And now we come back to look at the cost of following Jesus. Starting in verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. The scene that's painted here is Jesus is departing from one side of the lake to the other. He's on the Sea of Galilee. And there's a decision point that's going on right now about who is going to follow him. The invitation is open to some of these people, apparently. One of them is a teacher of the law. So apparently the invitation is open to that person because he feels like he has to respond. And he says, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, that's the way it's written in English, wherever you go. What he really means probably literally is, I will follow you where you are going. So this isn't like a statement of undying loyalty. He's saying, I'll go with you where you're going. Where's this boat going? I'm ready to go. Let's go. I'll follow you. He calls him teacher. So maybe that means he recognizes that Jesus is someone of authority. Even though he is a teacher of the law or a scribe, he calls Jesus teacher. So he respects that Jesus has some knowledge about this. I'll follow you wherever you go. What does Jesus' reply mean? What does this mean? Foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What kind of answer is that? Is that like a riddle? Isn't it a little bit insulting? You think it is? Why? I find it insulting because this guy's here wanting to follow him, and then the cop comes back. It's like the guy wasn't saying, where are you going to go rest? Let me go join you at your house. It was more, I'll go where you're going to head, not to some resting place. So it's almost like you're mocking the guy going, well, if you're going to follow me, you're not going to have any home. And the guy's like, I've already said I'll follow you. So anyone else have a different take on it? What do you think this means? It's like a warning. You know, the teacher's coming up to him and telling him he's going to follow him and sort of like, just let you know, this is the way it's going to be. So if that's fine with you, it's fine with me. But Yeah, notice in the passage we don't have the outcome. We don't know if the guy actually followed him or not. Most of us probably when we read this assume the guy went away. I don't know why we assume that. I mean, we're assuming it. It doesn't say he didn't go. It doesn't say that he did. The focus isn't so much on the teacher. It's on Jesus' words. Yeah. I, uh, I'm just going to go out on a limb here. I think that Jesus, I think he's calling people out because he's like, oh, I'll follow you wherever you go. And I think maybe he's looking at their hearts and their hearts, they're saying it, but they actually won't do it. So he's calling them out and then going like, hey, you know what? Just to let you know, that you need to let go of your, your hold on your house or your hold on something else, and you need to follow me if you really want to do that. Otherwise, go back and do what you want to do. So I think he's calling them out on the points of where their heart's really at or where the priorities really are instead of actually, you know, he's like, okay, you're saying it, but, you know, I know that your heart's not with me, so I'm going to call you out on it, and then they, they disappoint him, you know? Yeah, and whether it literally means I'll follow you wherever you go, or whether it means I'll follow you to the place you're now going. Jesus is warning him, and he is kind of calling him out to say, I wonder if you know what that means. What kind of life did Jesus live? He was homeless 
for the most part, right? I mean, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean he slept outside every night, but it kind of implies it when he says he has no place to lay his head, you know? Like, no physical place. He stayed at Peter's house for a while. But most of there were nights he just camped out. He didn't have a base of ministry. He didn't have uh, a worship center. He didn't have any of those things. And he, I, he's saying, okay, you want to follow me? Let me remind you of what you're signing up for. Here, look at this guy. Another disciple said to him, Lord. And it's interesting that one calls him teacher and one calls him Lord. Maybe the teacher just thinks Jesus is an interesting rabbi. Yeah, like he's a teacher. He's a smart guy. I'd like to follow him. This other guy seems to recognize him in a different way. And while the word doesn't have to mean Lord like God, it might just mean master. Matthew uses the word Lord when he has the disciples addressing Jesus as opposed to teacher that's almost exclusively used by Matthew as a salutation of people who weren't following him. So this, kind of, this guy might be even a little bit more committed. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Jesus' response, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. We've heard this one before, right? You guys familiar with this? What does it mean, let the dead bury their own dead? We've come up with all sorts of meanings to kind of explain this away because it sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? It sounds that this way. If the other one wasn't insulting, it might have been a warning. This one just sounds downright insulting, right? Like, uh, I'll be right there. I just need to bury my dad. You know, you'd think like this, the right response is, bless you, my son. Go bury your dad. You know, that's an important thing to do, right? Isn't that what Jesus is supposed to do? He's supposed to say it in an English accent, though, right? I mean, he's not... not what, what's, what do you think about this? What does it mean, let the dead bury their own dead? Well, I take it as that the father is not even dead yet, and he's kind of more going back home to be with him instead of the, then him just being dead. One explanation that people have given is that we don't know his dad's actually dead. He's just putting off the discipleship, putting off following Jesus, because he thinks his dad might die, and he's saying, let me get that done, and then I will follow you. Okay, that's a possibility. It's not directly in there, but it's a possibility. The other possibility is his dad is actually dead. Okay? The reason that possibility may not be as strong as, like, what's he doing there if his dad's already dead? You know, like, why is he even having this conversation? But I want to point out that in Scripture, there are instances where it's commanded of certain people like the high priest, even the people who took the Nazarite vow, that even if their father should pass away, that they have important rites that, are, uh, that they're supposed to do, like consecrated rites that are more important even than burying their own father. And in the Hebrew culture, burying your own father is the most important thing you do. You, once they die, you had a very limited time to bury them. It was supposed to be done within 24 hours. It was very important that it be done, but there are these small places in Scripture where there's almost a carve-out for very important, consecrated people. Maybe Jesus is making an allusion to that in some way. He's saying there is something even more important than this very important duty of you burying your father. Well, and that makes sense, too, because we see a lot in the Scriptures that what Jesus likes to do is challenge the Jewish established norm. He very much goes against what everyone is expecting of people of the day, of, of a good Jewish man of the day. Okay, you're right. His, he went against the culture the way that it had been interpreted, for sure. Do you think maybe he's just trying to make a point in the sense of, you know, okay, so let's say you know, the person is dead, and he actually needs to go do this, and it's really important. Um, do you think he's trying to make a point to say, 
following me needs to be placed above all things. It almost seems to be like a, a piece of rhetoric. He's trying to make the point that, that following him costs everything as opposed to saying, yeah, don't, don't actually go bury your father, you know? Because, I mean, he takes a lot of lines where he actually goes by, you know, follows Jewish practices. And, and especially seeing how, how sacred and important this is, maybe he's not actually trying to say, don't do that. Like, I don't think he's being rebellious for the sake of being rebellious, and I don't think he's being controversial for the sake of it. But we know that Jesus uses very strong words sometimes. Strong enough that they're, like, shocking to us. This is one of those that I think if you looked at it, you think, this is shocking. All right? It's shocking to them. It's a little shocking to us. I also think it's important to note that some people have attempted to spiritualize this by saying, what he really means is, let the spiritually dead bury the dead. Like, you just come follow me now. That's a possibility. But I think it softens the impact of Jesus' words. I mean, that may be possible, and I've heard that preached, and I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying Jesus meant this to be provocative. I think he meant it to be shocking, like, do you understand what it means to follow me? Do you have a comment? And it would almost be easier. He's already dead, fine, I'll let the corpse rot, let someone take care of it. But you know, he's saying, if, even if the father's still alive, it seems even, even more harsh. Uh, yeah, he's still sick and needs you, but I need you to follow me. You know, so there's even a stronger emphasis there about uh, what, what's, what is higher priority. Okay, Monique. I like what you said, and I think that's really like powerful, and that makes a powerful statement. But is it possible too that it could have anything to do with like the passing world and like listen, your father's already dead. Like, don't concern yourself with things that don't matter. There's nothing that can be done there. Like, put your focus on the things that are still growing and still here and important. Like, that's kind of what Ryan's talking about. That you got to let go of things. And what Morgan's talking about is priorities. And that's kind of what I want to do, which is not something I often do. But it kind of brought in this little bit of an object lesson tonight. This, this, little, this little glass vase right here is like filled up with stuff. You can see it, right? You know, one of the things that I've been struggling with is people asking me about how we translate what happens in here, the kind of thoughts that we wrestle with, and the things that we do into action. How do you let go of enough stuff to follow Jesus in this way? Ryan's already hit on some of it, I think. You have. Morgan has. I think this, this concept of letting go a little bit. I mean, when Jesus is saying foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I don't have a place to lay my head, he's not bragging. What he's doing is he's trying to say, this is what it's going to take to follow me. So many of us in here, I think if I asked you to raise your hand, I'd say, how many people in this room would like to be used by God? I think a lot of us would say, yes. Jesus' response would be, foxes have holes and birds have nests. I have nowhere to lay my head. Where do you lay your head? You see, we used to sing a song when I was younger about us being like empty vessels and God's going to fill us up, you know, all this kind of stuff, and we sing this concept. Most of our lives look like this thing. It's totally filled up. Now, it was kind of interesting because I was asking like what we could fill this thing up with and we found all this potpourri and I was like, that's actually not bad because most times that you hear people talk, they're talking about all the junk in your life, you know, all the bad things that fill up your life. But you know what? Most of us in this room have filled up our lives with good things. I mean, sure, it's easy for me to tell you to get rid of the bad things in your life. 
But how about all the good things? Like burying your dad. How could that be a bad thing? How about your education? Your work? Your hobbies? Your friends? Your relationships? Your dreams? Your aspirations? Everything that you want to do, you filled up your life totally to the point where now when we're sitting in this room frustrated by how, how would God use me? I'd go, I don't know. There's not much room in here to put anything. If you were the storage vessel of God, like, God, I'm an empty vessel, fill me up. He's like, you're not really empty. I can't use this thing. And that's what Jesus is saying. You want to follow me? Like, you need to empty yourself out. And I think this is a powerful lesson that we need to understand in this room, is that most of us, in fact, all of us, it doesn't matter what size your vessel is, by the way. Be big, huge, small. Most of us are filled up to the point where we really can't be used so that we're not following Jesus the way we should because we haven't left it all behind to go follow him. Now, I'm not trying to be extreme. But see, God has a choice when he looks at us in this position. His choice is, first, he could leave us alone. And he's just not going to use us because we're too busy, because we're too filled up. The other choice sometimes I think is not that great the other choice is like where he just voluntarily on his own comes up to you and says, would you like to do a little emptying out? You know, and everybody's like, I don't know what I can cut. You know, I've got all these things I want to do. Then like the third choice is for him to just come along one day and go, now I can use you. <laughs> That's painful. I don't think any of us want that in our lives. I don't know what's worse, God just leaving us alone sometimes or him actually doing it. So it's just kind of an idea. It's not directly in this passage, like I'm going to empty you out. He is saying to somebody, leave behind the things that are not a priority compared to following me. That is the priority. There's nothing more important than that. And then come after me. Philip. Even if you're saying, like, it's good things, like, well, a friendship you have, well, that takes up a lot of time, and so, well, let's just take that, let's assume, like, that takes up all of your time, well, why can't you use the good things that are in your life to say, well, I'm going to use you in that way, like, why did you need to have, like, well, we emptied this out, or even, like, take some stuff out so God has room to fit in, it's like, why can't God just use the stuff that you are, I understand, like, there's a priority issue. It is. Like, we don't ask him about those choices, we just make them. I would buy that if what we did was we were seeking, we were like, you seeking to fill up with things that we thought he wanted us to do. I would say that if that were the case, you're probably right. We're doing the best we can because we don't have anything. In other words, until better instructions come along, I'm filling up with my, my life with what you want, what I think you want me to do. I would say that doesn't apply to much more than 5 or 10% of us. Most of us have just filled up our life, period. Like we made decisions. We just filled up our life with stuff. And then we're constantly struggling, wondering why we don't have this more vibrant connection to God and why his, like he's not using us in certain ways because we made those choices. I, I know that's true in my life. And I just, many people, when you sit down, you ask them, like, well, who told you to do those things? I mean, it just seemed like the right thing to do. It's like, right. So we've made decisions and filled up all this stuff and then thought, now God just needs to somehow figure out a way to get around all the things I did. He can. I mean, he can we're not going to thwart God's sovereignty. But if you said to me, well, actually, I was doing some things, and I thought I'm just going to pick the best things I think I can do. Yeah, I don't think he's going to have a problem with that. 
Okay? But I don't think that's happening with many people. That's his statement on discipleship. Let me go one more. Now he comes to call Matthew. Shortly after this happens. We're in chapter 9, verse 9. And Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Seems like that happens a lot with Jesus. He just says, like, follow me. And somebody just gets up, leaves the boat, right? Now, Matthew, who's a tax collector, like, Matthew's got a pretty good job. All right? I think we should point that out. Matthew has a good job. I mean, he might be a little corrupt, maybe more than a little, but he makes good money. He just gets up, follows Jesus. We don't really have any understanding of how he knows Jesus. And then all of a sudden, the story must move forward a little bit because suddenly Jesus is having dinner at Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with them and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciple, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What does that last part mean? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What's Jesus saying? Yeah. Well, he's speaking to Pharisees, and he's definitely making a strike at the temple. Uh, their exclusivity, because they're making people, they're keeping the poor poor, making and even isolating them from the community if they couldn't make sacrifices. So that's definitely one. The point of the temple is mercy, is, is God, is being able to receive God's mercy. Um, and so they've inverted the temple and, and they've elevated sacri sacrifices above mercy from these people who he sits and eats with. Yeah, what kind of people is he sitting with? We call them tax collectors and sinners, right? Like the general cast of characters in the Bible, right? When we talk about bad people, like you bring in some prostitutes, tax collectors, and just general sinners, right? Those are the bad people. So Jesus is being criticized for sitting with these people. Jesus is being criticized for having dinner with them, which is a little bit more than just going out to eat with them. He's, having an, he's associating with them. It's an intimate act to have dinner with somebody in this way in the first century. So he's being accused. So he is striking out at the Pharisees who accuse him and say, hey, look, I'm looking for mercy, not sacrifice. And when he's saying, I've come to call the righteous, I mean, he's striking right at them. Like, you who think you are righteous. By the way, just notice that he says, I have come. That's a pretty provocative statement. He's identifying himself as somebody who's just not just human, like, I have come. I probably don't think that was lost on them, that he's saying, like, like I've been sent, I'm on this mission. Like, who are you? Who are the tax collectors and sinners in our world? Who are we not spending time with? I mean, do you ever sense this, that our churches have people that, you know, like, we're the righteous? You get that from our, some of our churches, that we are the righteous, and then there's all those other people who are not righteous? Who are those other people? Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. All right, somebody who's got a tattoo. I've seen people like, yeah, how do you fellowship with people who've got tattoos? Who else? People who drink. 
Homosexuals. People who dance. People with people with AIDS. How about homeless people? How about people who don't like? How about impoverished people? We don't we don't say anything about them. Sure we do. They show up to our churches. We get all weird, wigged out. They walk in. You know, like what what's going on? What do they want? You know, what are they gonna do? Is he talking to himself or praying? I can't tell. This word sounds like we could always confine it to the Bible. Sure, the Pharisees, they were always pointing the finger at Jesus like, you eat with tax collectors and sinners. What about us? Aren't we kind of becoming that same way? Like before we always put the Pharisees out there like they're that group in the Bible we can always take shots at? Aren't we kind of Pharisees in our churches as well? Like when we talk about how could God use us, what does it mean to be a disciple? Some of the things, he's modeling all of this. Like he just called a disciple. And then he's sitting down to say, this is what we do. Follow me. Watch what I do. Here's what I do. I sit down with these people that are outcasts in society and we have dinner together. And I spend time with them. And I'm even going to affirm that I came for these people. I came for these people. So if these people in our day, how many of our churches are there for those people? They're not. And we're criticized for hanging out with these people, right? In our modern day context, right? We create distinctions, you know? Are they saved? Are they saved? You know, we create these distinctions to, to put them in different categories, you know? So we still haven't learned these lessons. I want to point that out because we could just skip right through this and go, oh, he just called Matthew, that's great. He just, oh, he, he's, he you know, had a little knockdown with the Pharisees again, you know, good job. He's talking to us. The difference is, though, is like Jesus isn't just hanging out with them or taking them what they're doing. Like he's there for a purpose and he's trying to show them what he's about and show them what life's all about. So it's like as us being Christians or followers of Jesus, we need to be doing the same thing. We don't need to be hanging out with, you know, whatever the case or the scenario is and partaking what they're doing and being like them. But we can hang out with them and do the will of what Jesus has called us to do. I agree with that. You know, when we did our series on non-Christians, like what non-Christians think about Christianity, we talked about the issue of how we work through this. And one of the, I went back and looked at our notes where you talk about what we do. And the reason I bring this up is, sure, if you just go hang out and sin like they do, we're, we're, we've lost our saltiness. We covered that. But the examples I remember reading in my notes as I look back this afternoon, like there was a church that criticized one of the women that worked at the church because she was working with AIDS patients. Not anything else other than loving and caring for them. And what was the stated reason? Because she was going to be taken over by the homosexual agenda to help people who are sick and need healing. The other one that was in our notes from that same book was that one of the elders at a church was criticizing a ministry that was trying to reach out to inner city people. And the criticism was, too many black kids in the ministry. What? That's what we've become. Not all of us. Maybe nobody in this room. But we're all the body of Christ. Like, part of our body is doing some of this. So, we got to just watch that. When we're missing that he's pointing out that this is what my mission's about. This is what I've come for. Yeah. Sometimes it's not even as like black and white as that. Sometimes people just get so obsessed with creating their own world. And, like, keep your children from non-Christian, like, friends, like, go to youth group 24, you know, creating the bubble where you lose focus, like, creating the quote-unquote safe environment and nurturing your spirituality. And sometimes it's, like, covered in that cloth where it's, like, 
no, we're just nurturing our spirituality. But then how can you be the salt and light to the earth if you know nobody in the world and you're not out, like, you know, coming in contact with anybody but, like, your Christian church family all the time? Yeah, a woman at church to me this morning, she said to me, she said, are you going to be teaching any other classes at the church? And I'm like, well, not for a while. She's like, you know what I wish we had? I wish we had our own school here so we could teach our young people. And I thought, well, God bless you. I'll see you later. Like, <laughs> I'm like what? Like, she, and, and I know why she was saying that, because she said, you know, what they're teaching in our schools is so wrong. And I thought, yeah, we just need to withdraw from the society, you know. Let's move to the Guyana and drink Kool-Aid. How about that? <laughs> One more small collection of verses tonight. Moving to 9.35 and to 38. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. You know, that's such a true statement about how few the workers are, how great the need is, especially in our century, especially in our time when there's more people alive today, just now, than there's ever been alive in all the centuries that came before this combined. Like, we need more people. Jesus points out something very interesting. Do you see where he said that he was preaching the good news, healing every disease and sickness? You know, when I've heard this verse preached about the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, it's always used in the context of evangelism. Like, we need to get out there and tell everybody about Jesus. I believe that, 100%. But notice that it comes also, there's this part about healing disease and sickness. That's part of the work. He was just talking about a physician coming to these people. He was making that analogy. A physician is coming to help those people who need him. And now he's talking about healing and sickness. They go hand in hand in Scripture. There's always been this connection. And it was a connection in the minds of the people that understood. They believed that sickness came from sin. So these are very intertwined concepts. Some of the Messianic prophecies talk about him carrying our sins and carrying our infirmities, almost in the same breath, almost interchangeably. So what I'm trying to point out here sometimes is that when we look at the workers are few, few to do what? Just to preach? Hey, we should be doing that. Just to tell the good news? Yeah, but also to do all the other things. Like healing the sick, the diseased, like reaching out, like doing all the things that are his priorities. The workers are few. Look, it's an imperfect analogy, but is the reason that we have so few people is because we're all so filled up? That we can't really be used? I mean, look, God can do anything he wants. Like I said, he'll empty us out if he really needs us. But it's our desire. I hear it in us that I want to be used by God. I want to follow you. I want to make an impact. I want to make a difference. I want to stop talking about it. I want to do these things. Consider what that means. It means you have to sit and take an honest evaluation of your life and what we have stacked up in that life and figure out, what can I start to let go of? Not this Wednesday, but the Wednesday afterwards, we're starting our Wednesday Bible studies again at our place. 
Morgan is going to be leading an eight-week series that's going to be very focused on doing. That's going to be focused on what is God's heart. What is His priority for us? And to evaluate how we're doing in each of those areas. To ask honest questions and talk about how are you doing in the area of giving? How are you doing in the way of reaching out to people who are lost? How are you doing in the area of caring for orphans, widows, people who are less fortunate? Not like in a theoretical sense, but to actually talk about it. Like, how are we doing? And why aren't we doing more? I would submit to you that that's one of the reasons we're not doing more. It's because we just don't even have the time. Because we're so filled up. And one of the disciplines that we've talked about in here that some practice better than others is the discipline of simplicity. Because when you live in a way that is simple, like Jesus, without a home, without all the worries of that stuff, you can be used of God in a better way. That's why people practice that discipline. We start at 6, we just cook food together, and at 7, we eat. So you can drop in if you are coming from work a little later. And then we're going to dive into talking about doing. Let's pray. Lord, I confess that it seems from minute to minute I'm just going to the next task that somehow got thrown onto the calendar. That I'm having to fake my way through things sometimes just to catch up. That I've badly mismanaged the life that you've given. So Lord, if there's others who have done the same, can you stay with us this week in our thoughts, in our prayers, Lord, even in our dreams? Whatever it takes for you to reach us, to show us the places in our lives where we've filled up so much that we have no room for the things that really matter, no room for it to be used in any meaningful way, that all we can muster is just a maintenance of the things that we've chosen. Lord, I know we want to follow you, but this week may the gravity of what those words really mean impress on our hearts so that we can start to make changes. And may we as a group explore it both here and on Wednesday nights. May we see true transformation happen when we honestly wrestle with what it is that you're calling us to do. Pray this in your name. Amen.